Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hi, everyone. I'm Julie Gunlock with the Independent Women's Forum. Today, I'm here with a really a good friend um, of both IWF and personally, Jeff Steyer. Um, he's a senior fellow at the National Center for, Re- for Public Policy Research in Washington, D.C., and he heads its Risk Analysis Division. Um, Mr. Steyer writes a lot about uh, what we at IWF like to call the culture of alarmism. Um, and, you know, that's, that's all those things we're told we should be, we should be afraid of. Um, Jeff examines those claims and gives us the real story. Um, so if you, if, you don't, if you don't know about Jeff or read his stuff, I really, I really suggest you start reading him. I read everything he writes. Um, he's featured nearly every day on um, national and reg- regional television shows and radio shows, and he's been published in top outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Post, Forbes, and National Review, and that's just a few. He's published everywhere. Um, Jeff, thanks so much for being with me today. Hey, Julie. Great to be with you. Okay, so today we're going to be discussing one of my favorite subjects. I know I've written a ton on it, and you have as well, the newly released dietary guidelines. Um, Before we get into it, Jeff, I want to give people just a brief explanation of, of what these dietary guidelines are. Um, you know, I think a lot of people sort of hear about them once every five years but might not really know um, what they are. So, so just very quickly, let me give you a 30-second explanation here. Um, every five years, three federal agencies give up some of their employees and they form a committee called the Dietary um, Guidelines Advisory Committee and they spend a year looking at, well, they are supposed to, they are congressionally mandated to look at, to review the latest nutrition data. And Jeff, you can get into that because I don't think they, they actually stick to their mandate. And they are, they are charged with reviewing this and then creating this document, which is the, the newest and greatest dietary guidelines. It's quite controversial. Um, I think uh, most people know that they saw a lot of reports, a lot of news reports on, on people objecting to these. So we're going to get into that a little bit. Um, but first, I, I want to get your opinion, Jeff, on what you think of this latest version of the di- dietary guidelines. Uh, thanks, Julia, and your description was, was quite useful uh, as people try to understand whether this exercise of the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee and uh, Congress's mandate to review those guidelines and rewrite them every five years, whether that's a good use of pa- taxpayer dollars and whether over that five-year period we really have changes in our understanding. Uh, of basic nutrition guidelines uh, or not. Um, I think what we've learned from this process is that political ideology tends to uh, evolve over a five-year period a lot quicker than basic nutrition advice. So 20 years ago, we knew to eat a balanced diet, high in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, lots of variety, uh, limit sugar, limit uh, overconsumption of, of fatty foods. Um, well, that hasn't changed. So what's changed? Well, in the process this year during the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, not only did, did agency staff, as you point out, get involved, uh, but they brought in hand-picked experts to talk about things like sustainability, labor policy. Yes, labor policy. We wanted to talk about the carbon footprint of meat and how we ought to change the way people eat 
perhaps suggesting that they eat less meat to lower the carbon footprint. Now, Congress clearly mandated nutritional advice. So when I hear nutritional advice, I think that's, you know, advice about how to eat to stay healthy. I think that's what Congress meant. But nutritional advice to the far left that infiltrated the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee thought or claimed that, well, this is nutritional advice. We're telling people what nutrition to consume, how to save the earth. And then when we went back at them, and this goes back into early last year, and challenged them on this, they argued, and they, we engaged with, with these activists uh, on Twitter, as I know you did. They claimed that, well, of course this has to do with health. You see, if we eat too much meat, we're going to harm the earth, and then we won't be able to produce as much food, and if we don't have food, that's bad for health. I mean, they made this argument with a straight face. And how did you respond to that argument? Because I think, I think the average person, I mean, look, you can stand at the, waiting for the PTA meeting to get started. You know, I know a lot of moms, you know, they, they hear this kind of stuff. They are, they are persuaded by this kind of argument. How do you, what, what's your response to that kind of thing? Uh, we responded substantively and pointed to the uh, original congressional mandate that they had to look at this for nutrition and health purposes and we challenged some of the numbers that they put forth, which I've done in, in later op-eds as well, challenging the claim that meat is so bad for the environment. Uh, in fact, there was one study out of Carnegie Mellon University that I wrote about uh, with, with uh, my co-author, Julie Kelly, uh, just this week in that, in that National Review piece that you mentioned. We cited the Carnegie Mellon University study, which said that if we switched over from our current diet, as we eat it today in America, to actually eating... Uh, the dietary guidelines recommendations, uh, it would have minimal impact. It wouldn't do much to change how we, uh, our effect on the environment. And because we would be eating more fruits and vegetables, uh, which I think is a good thing, we would actually be using more water and water resources we know right. are in fact, uh, are in fact uh, quite tough right now. So, you know, uh, the, the foodies love, uh, love us having our almond milk smoothies. Well, there's a, there's a high, water footprint from almond, almonds, especially yes. almond milk. So, so my point is that with, with these new dietary guidelines, um, they have very little impact in terms of, I, I think they ought to have very little impact on how we live our lives today, but we ought to be concerned about the fact that the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee is increasingly being used to trump out these, 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 these weird ideologies that are now getting play. Uh, this is not mainstream scientific nutrition advice about how we eat. And so our response to that actually prompted Congress in the budget deal at the end of the year to actually advise the dietary guidelines group to only use health nutrition advice based on good science. And I think that was a positive change that we made. You know, they went too far. They thought nobody was watching. Uh, but we called them on it. I know you did as well. And, uh, and we actually got Congress to say, no funny stuff here. And in fact, right. to its credit, to the Obama administration's credit, the actual dietary guidelines that came out were pretty good. They weren't much changed. There was a little bit more language on sugar. Yes, and, but, you know, yes, it's, it's interesting. I, ha I also agree that there, there was some good advice in the dietary guidelines. But I think you would agree that telling people to, you know, watch your fat content, eat less sugar, 
you know, make sure you're getting fruits and vegetables. I mean, did this really require a nearly 600-page document and millions of dollars in taxpayer money and a year of work from these people? I mean, this is this sort of belongs in the no, you know, duh category of of dietary advice. So, uh, you know, I think I think when people, yes, look, there was some there was some good advice in the dietary guidelines, but people really need to put it in perspective. Um, that again, this took a year of study, it, and it took it took a lot of pushing from people like you and Julie Kelly and others um, to to really get them to stick to their mandate. And I, I think that's a question that taxpayers need to understand. That this comes at a cost. You know, Jeff, when I st- first started writing on this, I I looked at the dietary guidelines and I I said, who cares, right? I mean, they're going to be ignored. What does it matter? And then the more I learned about it, the more I realized the impact that these guidelines have on this, and I know you've written about this as well. Tell me, as a taxpayer, I mean, obviously, as someone who's interested in nutrition, I should be interested in this, but let's say you just don't really care and you ignore these guidelines. Who cares? Fine. They go. Tell me why, as a taxpayer, I should care about this. Well, for a few reasons. First, as a taxpayer, you should be concerned that they're doing this every five years, which means, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a process that lasts over a year. Uh, so... In four years from now or less, um, I don't know, maybe three years, they're going to start spending our money preparing another set of guidelines. And it will be, you know, even if our side wins, if, if, if we run, if, if the, whoever is the next president is not as far left as President Obama, um, maybe we'll have some more right of center policies in it, which would be nice, but that's not what Congress intended. And what I would propose, a very, very modest proposal, Instead of scrapping the guidelines, instead of you know tra- placing more limits on them, I would say, you know what? Let's just make a simple change. Instead of every five years, let's do it every 15 years because then maybe we'll have better nutritional understanding in 15 years. Maybe something will. But let's just let's just limit the scope of the amount of money that we're spending on this by just doing it every 15 instead of every five. And all of a sudden, you know, if we start. It's funny. It's funny. I just want to interrupt you on that one point. I I actually disagree with you on that, and which is odd because I know that we have very similar opinions about this. But I think that even five years, in terms of scientific discoveries about nutrition and about you know the, the latest medical information, five years is an eternity. They find out new things and better treatments. You know, every month something new comes out, and so in some ways, I wonder if the better path would be you know, to scale this back so that they're making small incremental changes as needed instead of waiting five years. I mean, I think about all the, you know, now cholesterol, the latest dietary guidelines said cholesterol is not a nutrient of concern. I mean, I think about my poor father and how many eggs and scrambled eggs he sacrificed over the years because and he ate those revolting egg substitutes because, you know, he thought that, you know, he has to limit his cholesterol. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I, I almost wish that there was there were um, updates to it more regularly and, and, and less of a sort of purgatorial process um, to get there. But yeah, I, I see what I you're hear, saying. I hear that point, but I'll just say that a lot of the uh, advances we're making are with medicine, personalized medicine, uh, but not basic nutrition advice. And you're right that, you know, don't eat cholesterol, eat cholesterol, coffee will kill you, coffee is good for you. And there's just this natural, you know, every study that comes out sends us a different message. And that right. is looking at it on, at too fine of a level. I think the, the purpose of the dietary guidelines are, are to be this kind of broader sense of nutrition advice. So rather than looking at it 
more closely on a more regular basis, I think it would be best not only for the taxpayer and spending less money, but also to get you know, bigger picture advice to include studies that stand the test of time to do it less often so it's less subject to that way of science where you have one study saying one thing and then another sure. the other way, back and forth. I'd like to kind of eliminate some of that. But, but you asked about the impact of the dietary guidelines. One of them is it's very expensive, uh, and it, it, it does get us conflicting advice every, uh, the more frequent, frequently we do it. So, yes, one of my recommendations would be let's do it a lot less often, um, but certainly we could still update Americans. You know, back when these dietary guidelines came out, were initially proposed by Congress, we didn't have the Twitter that we have today, Facebook. The you only know, nutrition websites are out there, good, both good and bad. We have other ways for Americans to get nutrition advice, not just from this voice of government. So I think we can achieve what you want uh, in terms of getting regular, more information uh, without having to have these big uh, bureaucratic committees where ideology gets in the way so often, Both, I think, from both sides. So that's one piece of advice. But in terms of the impact of the dietary guidelines, yes, uh, many people will ignore them. I think that's another problem with doing them so often is we keep hearing new advice. Uh, but they do have an impact, as you, as you alluded to. Uh, military families, uh, they get a certain allowance of how much money they can spend on food. And that uh, amount of money, that, that they, they call it a bucket, they, they, they create a bucket of food. And the bucket of food is based on the dietary guidelines. So if you're supposed to be eating this much uh, grain and that much meat. They look at what is the price of grain, what is the price of meat, and they come up with a this basket of foods, bucket or basket of foods, and the basket of foods uh, is then uh, then is is what's used to calibrate how much money they get. So, for instance, if the activists on the dietary guidelines advisory committee had their way, thankfully they didn't this time, uh, and we were told to eat less meat. Uh, and eat uh, veggie burgers instead, then military families would only be getting enough money to serve their families veggie burgers and not meat because the guidelines don't want us eating meat, probably right. because it would have been bad for the earth. So thankfully that didn't pass. But these guidelines have effect on uh, on how much we give people for uh, the WIC program, military, school, school lunch programs, Mass. This is the nutritional advice, yes. Yep, yep. Yeah, it has, it has massive implications, and I'm glad you took those down. And I think a lot of people don't sort of realize um, that, yes, these, these guidelines come out, um, and, oh, okay, I, I may or may not follow them, um, but there are people who can't help but uh, follow them because, uh, as you said, the, the military, school lunch programs, certain welfare programs uh, rely on them for guidance. So that is a really huge uh, point for people to understand that they may ignore them, but their tax dollars are not ignoring them. And I'm so glad that you brought up, I want to just switch gears here to talk about some of the other sources and why, you know, we, uh, you, you mentioned that, uh, that now with in the age of social media, um, we have bloggers, health bloggers. I mean, we have a billion-dollar, you know, n- nutrition and exercise industry that cranks out not only television shows but uh, but books and magazines and all sorts of things. 
Um, and that's good. I mean, you know, I think both you and I, I think you and I would agree that that can be good and bad. I mean, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, but what's so important, uh, I think, and I think you would agree, is that with the dietary guidelines, it's sort of a one-size-fits-all. I mean, there is some general good advice that everyone can use, but it is a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, and anybody who, who writes about obesity or health issues or food issues knows that that people need individualized advice. My advice to people, and I'd like to get your advice on these issues, is talk to your doctor and, and, and talk to a nutritionist or someone that you uh, trust on these issues or check a particular blog. I think you know uh, your own health, um, and, and your doctor certainly can be a good source of information. What do you tell people about if they need a good source of information on this stuff? Well, I think you, you gave the right advice, which is regardless of what the government does, you need to have a doctor and health professional that you trust and, and go to them for advice because you're right, it is personal. Uh, I'll give you an example. If I just said, okay, I am going to follow the dietary guidelines because I want to be healthy. Well, that's wrong because last week when I got on the ski lift at 8.30 every morning and got <laughs> off at 45 p.m., I needed a lot more calories than I needed this week and I'm sitting in my office doing radio interviews all week, right? It depends. Right. It varies week to week. Right. L- listen, I, I want to, we're, we're running out of time here, but I, I do want to switch gears a little bit and talk about a new piece that you and, and co-author Julie Kelly, who's been an, a guest on this show, we are big fans of Julie's work, um, wrote for National Review Online. It's got a funny title, Your Burger is Killing the Planet, says uh, climatarians. It's a really interesting uh, uh, sort of piece about the cross-contamination of the food nannies and the environmentalists. They've created this new, whole new category of activists. Tell us a little bit about your article and why you think Americans should be warned about this group. Well, they're called climatarians. It's, It's a new term. And it's a diet whose goal is to reverse climate change and they want us to eat locally produced, produced food to reduce energy spent in transportation. They want us to choose pork and poultry instead of beef and lamb because it's lower gas emissions. Uh, and they want less food waste. Now, I'm, I'm all for less food waste. You know, I think sure. food waste is, is actually a real problem. Uh, but the ideology behind the climatarian approach uh, is already actually, you know, we made it sound like, wow, this is this new concept. Well, in fact, there are federal programs now uh, from the USDA encouraging us to eat locally. Now, I grow my own tomatoes uh, in New Jersey, but you know what? It's January. It's 17 degrees out. I'm not growing tomatoes now. I would still like to eat tomatoes so this time of year, so I'm glad that we don't only eat locally. But there are federal programs that are encouraging more and more local eating, even if it's not efficient. Yesterday... I had a pineapple. They don't grow in the yeah. Northeast, even in the summer. So I think, it's a, I think it's a good idea to eat locally when it's local, fresh food. Great. I love it. I, I love going, going blueberry picking every summer. But this ideology that has, has begun to take hold is that we should only eat locally because eating food from far away is bad. If you try you know, to honest, grow... You know, I, I, I really also object from a humanitarian standpoint... I think that world trade helps people. 
that there are crops that are grown in developing nations that are imported into the United States. For instance, the Peruvian asparagus grower, okay? I, 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 asparagus is not growing in my neck of the woods. I'm like you. It's 17 degrees outside. I could maybe dig up a potato somewhere, but <laughs> no, nothing, nothing is growing. And, um, and so I, you know, in response to these people who insist on locally grown food, I like to say I like to support the Peruvian asparagus growers and the many other growers out there um, who import crops to the United States. So I do find it kind of interesting that on the left, um, you have this, you know, this contradiction. I, I suspect these are the same people who really care about farmers in poorer countries um, trying to profit off of uh, the, you know, interests of Americans who, who want to have tomatoes in the middle of winter or want to have pineapples or want to have things that are grown in these developing nations. And there is a market for that here. Um, so well, I, Julie, I do... Julie, you're, you're, Julie, you're making the mistake of thinking rationally and trying to apply <laughs> rational thought to, the, to their side. That's right. But I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you the truth, uh, because I, this is what I study. The, the left would actually say, no, we don't want the Peruvian farmers uh, growing asparagus, because those people, by, by growing asparagus, they're probably using fertilizer and damaging their environment. We want to keep their environment clean for them. Uh, so right. instead of you know instead of having them grow grow asparagus, what we ought to do is we ought to abstain from asparagus because it, it, it has to it has to travel far. And what we ought to do is we ought to take the wealthy people and tax them for eating meat which is a real proposal that they tried to get before the U.N. Yep. climate change conference in Paris, which Julie and I also wrote about for the Wall Street Journal. They want to tax Kelly. meat. Yes, Julie Kelly. And they want to tax meat and then use the proceeds of that meat eating, transfer that money to the Peruvian farmers to have them not grow asparagus. That, that, that sounds grow. like, yeah, that's... <laughs> that sounds like a fabulous plan. <laughs> but that's, that's how they think. They're not going to say we don't care about the food farmers. They're just saying we ought to be taking money away from the people who like meat and are damaging the environment and use that money to save the environment and give it support, just, just give cash handouts through the United Nations uh, and, and all of the waste and graft that goes through that. Uh, well, and, I, and I hate... I, I tell you, I hate to... Um, to end uh, end a podcast with um, with such crazy talk, I like to end things <laughs> on a positive note. Um, is there anything else that you have coming out, or have anything um, being published soon? I want and and where can uh, listeners find all of your writing? Because I, I have to say, I'm a big fan of everything you write, and I I think everyone should should read what what Jeff writes. Well, thank you. I'm a senior fellow at the National Center for Public Policy Research. They're at nationalcenter.org. You can follow uh, my writing exclusively at Jeff Steyer, J-E-F-F-S as in Sam, T-I-E-R, jeffsteyer.org. Uh, and if you want to get a more uh, up-to-date kind of constant pulse of what's going on in health policy uh, on everything from these nutrition guidelines to e-cigarettes, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff A. Steyer. I will tell you Jeff's um, Twitter feed is, is a lot of fun. He's very courageous. He likes to argue with the, uh, the, the most um, intrusive nannies, so I encourage you to follow him there as well. Jeff, thanks so much for, 
for coming on today. Um, this concludes the uh, podcast for today. Thanks so much for listening in. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by IWF.org for similar content.